0: I'm actually, I'm glad that we did it this way because I feel like getting some of my thoughts laid out about these different articles, it'll be kind of helpful. Yeah. Analyzing.
1: I had things bouncing around in my head all day about it and I've forgotten all of it. So Mm -hmm. this can only be good.
0: But I wanted to do a little audio test, just playing with the new microphone equipment here. Let's see if we can record these noises.
1: Ah, uh, you clip, you, you clipped on your rib, dude. Nobody's—you're not supposed to be clipping on the rib.
0: So, Jared, yo, this weed is called Grandpa's stash. Hell yeah!
1: Did you steal it from an old man?
0: <laughs> if I start sounding like I have Joe Biden brain today,
1: all oh, right, on, dude. I think I've been smoking that. Oh, this whole week has like turned me into a goldfish. I can't remember anything.
0: Been a busy one at work. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> That's an understatement.
0: Fuck. So since we did our our last podcast, Jared, I noticed that well, we talked a little bit about how Dan Carlin has produced a new episode last week. And I couldn't help but notice that he basically just totally aped our last five minutes of our show.
1: I mean, there's like <laughs> there's zero chance that he has listened to anything I've ever said, but yeah,
0: totally. (laughs) But what we said in like the last five minutes of recording, I think he must've listened to it. I think he probably took it and then like stretched it out into like an hour and a half long navel gazing session. And I got to say, it's just a little bit disheartening because, you know, we're just getting onto the scene, you know, we're just starting a podcast and already The king of podcasting is basically stealing our ideas and trying to stomp us down.
1: My, how the mighty have fallen.
0: I know, right? Honestly, he he could do so much better. But I think that, you know, in terms of our long-term goals for the podcast, we should kind of annotate the old anarchist phrase and say that we want to attack and dethrone Dan Carlin now.
1: Yeah, I could sign on for that, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) He's had his time. (laughs)
0: Yeah, now now it's Dan Carlin marching down the staircase of history with his soft slippers. And us with our, our hardened boots are going to stomp up after him.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he'll be completely enamored by what great men we are, so.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> he'll be interested in his own demise, at least.
0: So we didn't really introduce ourselves last time. We kind of forgot about that. But we, we should probably introduce ourselves and tell people our new podcast name. I'm James. I'm a person. Um, I'm a white man. I'll say that.
1: <laughs> so brave. <laughs> Coming out as a white man in 2020. <laughs> what are you, straight to?
0: I know, and a podcaster, right? <laughs> this is the compost bin of history. On this show, we're going to... We're going to stick our pitchfork into some old ideas and mix them around with the new ones for a nice, nice even breakdown.
1: That was pretty smooth. And my (laughs) co-host. My name is Jared. I'm just a real hardworking American from the heartland of this great United States. Yeehaw. Yee-freaking-haw.
0: So, one of the topics we really hit on last week before Dan Carlin stole from us was you know farming in America right big agribusiness and the the small family farmer what few of them remain and how they're kind of you know mainly the ones who are like the center point of the ideological fascination with farming like everyone thinks about small family farmers that's what they put on the milk carton but of course the people who mainly are driving the industry producing food and getting lots of subsidies from the government are massive farming operations, um, and basically like food companies that own zillions of acres and all the livestock.
1: Yeah, and treat their workforce also as livestock. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you definitely want to make sure that your livestock like, are fed well and stay healthy, so they get treated worse than livestock in a lot of cases.
0: Right. I mean, it really is, it reminds me a lot of feudalism, right? <clears throat> Just in that, sure, you could quit this job. But then you're totally fucked and your family will
1: die. Ah, You can just go strike it out on all that common land we got and grow your own food. You know?
0: Well, that's, of course, the at the root of the American agribusiness uh, sectors, you know, this idea of common land. I think that it's sort of like this holdover for Manifest Destiny that now instead of, you know, exploiting common land, we're now like exploiting. All of these uh, shared resources and, of course, pinching those people at the bottom of the production line um, harder and harder to bring profit out of the system. So I thought we would kind of attack this from a few different articles. I I hate it when, you know, we're so right and timely, but these have all also transpired within the last week since we recorded our first episode. And the first one is... Uh, And this will kind of be our way of introducing the topic. From a week ago today, September 18th, 2020, the USDA plans an additional $14 billion for farmers reeling from virus. These farmers are out there in their soybean fields, clutching at their pearls and fainting into hay piles, I suppose. (laughs) So this is coming from David Pitt of the Associated Press. Out of Des Moines, Iowa.
1: I gotta love the correct pronunciation on that town there.
0: Thank you. The federal government said Friday that it will give farmers an additional $14 billion to compensate for the difficulties they have experienced selling their crops, milk, and meat because of the coronavirus pandemic the USDA released details of its plan that it said will provide financial assistance that gives producers the ability to absorb increased marketing costs associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. President Donald Trump first mentioned the aid in a speech Thursday night in Wisconsin, a presidential battleground state that is considered vital for his chances to win a second term. Farmers can begin signing up for the program on Monday. So that was three days ago. Within... A four-day period, Trump announced these $14 billion in benefits, and four days later, farmers were able to start signing up for them. And I think that's like an amazing turnaround time, especially when you look at all the other clusterfuck handling of things with the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: That's yeah, crazy what you can do when you want to do something. I know, <laughs> yeah. Boy, $14 billion additional funds. What are they talking about there? It sounds like uh, maybe they're already getting massive amounts of subsidies.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, what we're going to find is that this is actually on top of billions more of subsidies that have occurred just within Trump's administration. And all of that is kind of sitting upon an edifice, which is heavily supported by government and public, uh, publicly funded universities. But I think that, you know, this particular event, just this 14 billion dollars, is really an obvious pandering to the big agribusiness in the lead-up to the election. And so I thought maybe in this episode we could kind of like explore briefly American agribusiness and kind of the state of it today, right?
1: All good things, I'm certain.
0: So you have to first understand the concept of Lebensraum, right? Oh boy. Which Which is the German word for manifest destiny. Now, what we all learned in ninth grade civics class was that Americans did Manifest Destiny, which was basically this mythical impulse to uh, spread the nation across the land from the Atlantic Coast to the Pacific.
1: Coincidentally, I do not believe that my high school offered any civics classes.
0: (laughs) But this is still what they teach in history, right? Is that... Um, Americans from, like, an early time are, like, imbued with this impulse to just, like, expand. And, of course, it's not – that's not the reason why, though. That's not the reason that it actually occurred. It wasn't just because everyone was like, we need to build the city on a hill, the shining beacon of democracy. No one fucking thought that. Well, some
1: people thought that.
0: Well, yeah, probably (laughs) some people who own
1: slaves. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, they're still people. We might not agree with them, but – I mean, they were, the most, so, they were the most people that people back then.
0: Well, and that takes us back to Lebensraum. Because you need living space for all of those people. Because the thing that happens with any agricultural system, particularly one where you don't have, like, a big education system, economic development around it, and birth control, is that you have 10 acres that has to get parceled up between, like, four kids. And over time, those pieces of land become smaller and smaller holdings. And so it leads to this impulse for people to move and start new farms elsewhere.
1: I don't even know if it's an impulse necessarily. It's kind of more of a necessity.
0: It's a necessity. You have to, if you want to have a family and do that shit as well, because you know, your, your dad might still be farming the same land for another 40 years. while well, you could be farming your own piece somewhere else. The problem though, is that in a, Limited resource environment, you only have so many times that you can have people move and then set up new farms. And eventually you have to go and think about, well, where can I acquire more of the natural resources that this whole system is running on? And conveniently, you just made this huge purchase from France of millions and millions of acres, and you are obviously going to send people out there, right? Because there's no one already living there. You don't need to worry about any, like, you know, cultural conflict or anything like that. That's what I learned in history class. (laughs) But, of course, that's not what happens. You actually have to do genocide. And that's why I think we should talk about... We even
1: had Native Americans in my history class. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) But instead, you know, this is why I think we should actually just replace Manifest Destiny with Lebensraum. It's because... The the end result is, is that you go somewhere else and you kill everyone who lives there and you take their land from them.
1: Well, you know, they're simultaneously lazy and uh, unvirtuous and also a massive threat to you at the same time.
0: Which, of course, those were all stereotypes that were applied both to Jews in uh, early 20th century Europe and Native Americans in late 19th century North America.
1: Hmm, that's strange.
0: <laughs> that is strange. That is really strange. It's almost like it was more convenient to hate the people here you're trying to genocide. I mean, it, but it anyway. probably
1: makes it a heck of a lot easier. I don't know. So that's why I'm a- only prejudiced against cheetahs.
0: Methodists for me, man. I'm super prejudiced against Methodists. Hey, I'm a completely
1: non-practicing Methodist. that uh, is very offensive to me. <laughs>
0: I always thought you were a really shifty person.
1: Me? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, right now, I probably look like peak shiftiness if anyone could see me through my thing.
0: So from um, the genocide that's occurring from your you know policies of imperial expansion, you then get all of this free real estate, right? And this was, you know, the Homestead Act in America that pushed all of these people from the crowded East into the West. And all of those people moved out, started their own new homesteads and their kids started homesteads in like the 1860s and seventies and nineties. And they were taking advantage of this free real estate. And you get this huge mass of like yeoman farmers right around the beginning of the industrial revolution. You have pretty much everywhere from like the smoky mountains to the Rockies. You now have this huge agricultural base on stolen land and it's now going to be developed using the tools of the industrial revolution, right? Around the same time we have in the factories of the East and in Europe, this huge increase in productive capacity through assembly lines, mechanization, and uh, new labor relationships as well. Right. Man, all that
1: new technology, you know, you think that would have just made it so everybody has to work less and has a way better life. Whatever happened?
0: Well, Actually, the new technology is a really important point because that was what was essentially creating this feedback loop with the yeoman farmers out there in the middle of the country where essentially new technology would come in and increase their productivity, which then in turn required an increase in markets. Right. And so it kind of spurred this this capital development cycle. Of the Industrial Revolution. And one of the byproducts of that, you mentioned the technology again, was land grant schools. Land grant schools, which actually, University of South Dakota, where we went, is not a land grant school. Um, but South Dakota State is one, the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, um, Colorado State, Iowa State. Uh, I think Iowa State. Yeah. So the whole point of having a land grant school, though, was that essentially it was not supposed to do normal education, right? Like, normally you would go to school to learn, like, philosophy and, you know, what it means to be, um, like, a good governor. And you'd read Plato and Socrates and shit, and you'd probably have to write some poetry. Yeah, They threw all that shit out the window.
1: Yeah, got time right? for that. You gotta go dig in the dirt.
0: Yeah. Now we need to train people to use all this new technology and, critically, to develop more new productive capabilities so that we can amplify that feedback cycle, and farmers can keep growing more and making more money, and we can keep making more stuff for them and buying their stuff.
1: Yeah, plus, you know, if you are like your father's generation, we're out there displacing a bunch of people from their ancestral lands, you can't be taking philosophy courses.
0: Hell no. (laughs) No. You gotta take, you gotta take, uh, fucking, fucking shop. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll only study, like, John Locke and shit. I could see that. (laughs)
0: so moving out of uh the industrial revolution of course um in the early like 1920s you basically come out of like world war one and there's like this decline in demand and you get the dust bowl and we actually we i need to read that book dust bowls of empire and we should do just an episode on that alone
1: oh it's it's a really good look at what we're probably going to be facing in the future that really doesn't have anything to do with climate change, but is going to compound with that to make imagine the dust bowl. But if somehow you could light dirt on fire. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so with that, you know, sudden decline and with the increasing uh, mechanization, people have tractors. Now it used to be that you would have, you know, a farm family that would like have 10 kids because you just needed all that labor to pick the corn and do all the, the shit, right? But when you now have, you know, um, combines and, um, you know, new technologies, you don't need all of those kids anymore. And even then, Actually, you're running out of all that free real estate. Things like
1: planting and harvest and stuff were fairly communalized before all of that technology came off the scene, too. I mean, it was a much more common thing for communities to kind of come together more and help everyone out to plant stuff, which still goes on today. I mean, farmers... Branding
0: and ranching.
1: Farmers, uh, well, yeah. I guess I'm talking more about, like, row crop agriculture and stuff like that. But against the the poisoning that's been done to their minds as far as politics Mm -hmm. go, they're still pretty communalist. Like, you know, if a farmer gets irrevocably maimed or something they do like benefits and stuff like that where the community comes together to raise money they they will help like the widow of a dead farmer plant and harvest and all that Mm. stuff i mean i don't know i feel like that stuff did obviously come together to atomize the average farmer a little more but
0: right they it still exists in the culture totally
1: Like even uh, against the best efforts of whatever you want to call all this progress, basically, right,
0: right. So with the land grant schools um, coming out of like the Dust Bowl and even during the Dust Bowl, you have now this oversupply of farm labor, and of course farms are like being shuttered and closed all over the place. There's like a huge, I mean, it, it is an agricultural crisis in the 1930s. But a lot of those people, and my honestly, my grandfather was a good example of this came out of growing up in that kind of like rough farming environment where like born in like the 1930s farms are failing, you know, it was just like in that kind of brutal experience as a child and then kind of hits the point where they are mature and no longer have easy access to start farming themselves. So they would go to these colleges and universities where they were, you know, at places like UNL and Texas A&M, they were actually involved in like agricultural research to increase productivity, increase efficiency, develop new fertilizers, develop new pesticides. And coming out of the world wars, we also see this huge increase in rush to privatize all of that research. And so those people who were no longer, say, needed on the farm and didn't see an easy avenue to start farming themselves or just wanted to do something else, often entered research through land-grant universities, and many of them then went into work in private agribusiness for people like Dow Chemical and Monsanto and all this type of thing. And so it's really interesting because you still have the tie between the mindset of that early kind of like hard scrabble existence, like coming out of the Dust Bowl and, and farmers, with now people who have access to enormous amounts of capital and tremendous resources and are basically cooked in the oven of maximize efficiency, maximize productivity.
1: It's spread smooth brome far mm. and wide.
0: Right. And interestingly, those three things that came out of it, which is, uh, Land-grant universities, big agribusiness, and the USDA, they are at the point of ex- capital extraction from the lowest people on the totem pole, right? Whether that's the small family farmer or the people working in the slaughterhouses and picking the row crops and the lettuce and stuff like that. At this point, we've essentially entered like the neoliberal stage of agriculture. Basically, in the 1970s and 1980s, what was called the Green Revolution with the 1960s and early 1970s was really the neoliberal revolution. Because with the overproduction of fertilizers and the introduction of globalized supply chains and the privatization of research capital, as we talked about in the 1970s and early 80s, this led directly to the farm crisis of the 1980s. And that can be seen as debt for land and equipment purchases doubled between 1974 and 1984 among farmers. So why does debt for land and equipment purchases double? Obviously that's a consolidation, right? That's fewer people farming more acres and buying land out from the people around.
1: Get big or get out.
0: Get big or get out. And so what that is, is the loss of thousands of small family farms.
1: That really pissed Willie Nelson off. I know that.
0: It did. <laughs> and, um, you know, this was a continuation of a trend that went all the way back to the Dust Bowl and even to the 1890s farm crisis. Basically, it was sort of maybe the final death knell of the small family farmer. And I mean, like I said, there are still a few around, but they just aren't like truly a thing anymore, as we're going to see. I mean, my, um, my
1: father's side of the family could could sort of be conceived as a small family farm, but I mean they rent out the lion's share of the land that they still control and instead of doing any row crops, they do alfalfa and cattle now. So two right. things which also are not particularly profitable.
0: Um so jumping back to the nineteen eighties, all of that record production led to a drop in commodity prices Land prices also fell dramatically, leading to record numbers of foreclosures. Again, more people losing their farms. And also the farm credit system that had been giving loans to all these people to buy all that land and all that equipment experienced large losses. So it was kind of like this cascading economic shock. And I'm sure that's not about to happen again. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) All right. So now we kind of have established a little bit of the material history of agribusiness in america did i leave anything out i mean
1: um i the only thing i can think of is uh just the sheer amount of suicides that were going on amongst people in farming communities back then that were basically just swept under the rug and uh called like natural causes basically when uh you know actually um the House that I grew up in was added to my great grandfather added that property to their holdings in the early fifties. And it was kind of an open secret that the person that owned it before them had killed himself in that house. Um, because, you know, basically the house was going up for auction and the guy didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, didn't know what else to do. So Mm -hmm. it was not apparently one of those situations back in the twenties that they talk about where. The bank took some guy's farm, and uh, all the other farmers showed up with shotguns and let the guy bid a dollar to get his farm back.
0: Right. And that's kind of some of the atomization that had transpired in the intervening decades. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's, yeah, let's jump back to today. Trump's going to give these farmers $14 billion because they're, again, they're reeling in their fields from the shocks of coronavirus. So continuing, the coronavirus pandemic has created several problems for farmers. Lowered availability of labor has reduced crop and livestock production, as well as processing capacity in meatpacking plants and other facilities. Yeah, don't buy that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) These problems have pushed prices that farmers receive for commodities lower. So what they're saying is that lower availability of labor leads to lowered prices. That
1: is definitely how the free market has been described to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> see, I don't know. I feel like I, I learned that when there's lower availability of labor, it was like increased prices because theoretically the demand was the same, right?
1: Yeah, what are you showing off because you paid attention or something?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Farmers have also seen a drop in demand for some products as fewer people have been eating out, which sure, I can kind of see that. And finally, and this is the big one for me, farm households have also suffered from loss of income from off-farm jobs that they use to fund farm production needs, household living expenses, and payments on farm business debt. Hmm. So, yeah, I would say, first of all, that prices are lower because of overproduction more than anything else.
1: No, because when you produce more, it makes everything worth more. That's why we need to cut down every last tree and plant corn and soybeans on the ashes of those.
0: (laughs) Well, but the overproduction also is hurting those small family farms, right? Because of the overproduction of like these massive, you know, um, you know, land holdings. Oh, of
1: course. If you can't buy thousands of acres every single year, I mean, you're going to have a little bit of a, a limiting factor on how much you can produce.
0: Right, and that's also why so much farmland is rented now, too, I think. Because you can make more money renting it out to some local baron with a fleet of combines yeah. than trying to eke it out by you know farming it yourself. Certainly.
1: Like I said, my family, they haven't farmed since the early 2000s.
0: But yeah, that last part—if you want to know like where the small family farmer is—it's in those farm households that have suffered from loss of income from off-farm jobs that they use to fund farm production needs. And pretty much every like every like literal family of people I know who is still literally living on a farm and maintaining that farm, every person in that family ha- also has an off-farm job. Oh yeah,
1: usually the wife's got the. The best job in the house that provides some type of health insurance and stuff like that, and everybody else, at the very least, does basically a full-time thing except for a couple months here and there where they have to harvest and plant.
0: Right. So, And I think that kind of highlights that the real problem here is not – I mean, obviously, coronavirus is a problem, but the problem is not coronavirus in and of itself, but rather how the whole agribusiness sector is set up. Coronavirus is just, like with everything, is just revealing all of these fault lines. They're going to get $14 billion. Agriculture groups applauded the additional money, much of which will come in direct payments for crops that meet specified threshold of price decline. What crops are those, you might ask? Well, they include corn, soybeans, wheat, and some cotton. So right there is like most of most of the crops. But also, chicken, eggs, milk, beef, cattle, pigs, lambs, tobacco, wool, alfalfa, oats, peanuts, rice, and hemp. Even Grandpa's stash made it in (laughs) to the
1: farm bailout. (laughs) Uh, The police union's going to have something to say about that.
0: (laughs) So basically, everyone, I mean, everyone except for those poor potato farmers in Idaho, it seems, is getting bailed out in this... uh, this latest $14 billion um, distribution. The program places a payment cap of $250,000 per person or farm entity for all commodities combined. Gross income can't be more than $900,000 unless at least 75% or more of their income is derived from farming or ranching. And that might sound a little confusing, but let me just kind of point out there. What they mean when they say gross income that means that's your total income before expenses, right? Can't be more than $900,000, which seems like an astronomical amount of money as it is, unless at least 75% or more of their income is derived from farming. And basically what that is, is how they ensure that huge farmers get their cut. Because if you're going to make $900,000 and you're even remotely you know, invested in farming at all, then you're probably making more than 75% of your income from, from farming. You must
1: have a pretty – I mean, why would you even piss around with farming if you're off-farm job, <laughs> if, 20, right. if 25% of that was, uh, you know.
0: Right. If you're making like hundreds of thousands of dollars, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, probably there are like some assholes who have like, you know, vineyards and, you know, it's just like a hobby to them or whatever. Well, yeah. Those are, those they are called
1: like actors and musicians, but like <laughs> – <laughs>
0: And just as a point of comparison, the Mac the the, the payment cap there two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person or farm entity. Um, my maximum unemployment benefit is a little less than nine thousand dollars, <laughs> and 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 this is the galling part, Jared. It's that I have corn growing in my garden.
1: Well, get bigger, get out, man. How many acres you got back there?
0: <laughs> I got. I probably have like one one thousandth of an acre. One
1: thousand. <laughs> just call up the USDA and be like, look. I got a, I got about twenty four years on uh out in my field out in the back forty. Uh, what can I get? I need some of this subsidy money. Times are getting tough well, out here.
0: The snowstorm killed all my corn and knocked him back real bad. So,
1: ah, uh, see, At there's your problem. I, that's not that's not COVID related. Sorry.
0: Oh shit. <laughs> Oh, and and you know what? It's it's um, like heritage Indian corn and it's not from like Monsanto or. Oh, yeah, that sounds icky. I don't
1: think they'd be interested in that type of thing.
0: Probably not. So, you know, this 14 billion dollars is coming after several other several other bailouts Um, in April. Just this year, the administration rolled out a 19 billion dollar program most of which was in the form of direct farm payments. And that followed $28 the federal government gave farmers to compensate for two years of disruptions caused by Trump's tariff battles with trading partners. And I did the math so you don't have to. That total is $61 billion just within the last two years, which has been given to American farmers.
1: Damn, they're going to be horning in on the military's action here pretty soon.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that's like an unfathom, unfathomable amount of money. Jeff Bezos, I think, only has a little bit more than that. I think he's like seventy five billion or something. Only
1: oh <laughs> Fuck.
0: <laughs> now this wasn't received with like universal acclaim. Some crop and livestock groups have criticized the way previous aid was divided and National Farmers Union President Rob LaRue made it clear in a statement that farmers want the money distributed fairly. Let me put on my uh, farmer union voice. The first round of funding, though greatly appreciated, was not without its flaws. Not only did it favor large farms over small ones, it also sent millions of dollars to foreign-owned operations and excluded some farmers entirely. Huh. He asked for congressional oversight and for the USDA to ensure that payments are commensurate with demonstrated need. Which sounds like socialism to me, Jared. I mean, I don't think they should be doing that. Ah, that
1: accent sounded like the opposite of socialism. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Priorit- so, prioritizing um, larger entities over smaller ones and malfeasance by some of those large entities. Man, where have I heard that before? <laughs>
0: Well, and it's funny, though, that I'm, I'm sure like literally billions of dollars have went to foreign owned operations and are now just like sitting in bank accounts in like Monaco and shit.
1: Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that one bit. This makes me so funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's about to get more infuriating. Let's check in with what the land grant universities are saying about all this, Jared. I'm sure that they're providing some really critical insight and analysis particularly one Scott Irwin, a University of Illinois professor who focuses on agricultural markets. Scott said the federal payments have offset a triple whammy of low commodity prices, a trade war with China, and a drop in demand due to the coronavirus. Of course, mm. not for any other reason. Aren't
1: those all the same thing?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: is <laughs> that three ways of saying we have way too much of this shit to get rid of?
0: So University of Illinois analysis found that in 2019, various federal support programs were responsible for 90% of a median grain operations net farm income in Illinois. And that was before coronavirus. Okay. So again, they basically just said why their, their argument was bullshit because <laughs> in 2019, 90% of median grain income and that's net farm income, so after expenses, mind you, was from federal support. So take away 90% of your net income, and that's actually how much demand is there. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty sure that, like, quote-unquote, farming hasn't been profitable since, like, 2012 or 2013, something like that.
0: Right. And, of course, none of this, it, you know, this is obviously to us a market correction of some kind, right? But to them... And to people like Scott Irwin, you have to maintain the system or expand it. The line has to go up forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, what what else could we do except for continue to produce as much as possible? That That's always a good thing, right?
0: So even as federal support has been responsible for more than one-third of U.S. net farm income in 2020. that's And so now we're, we're talking net again. Irwin said many farmers still are struggling because of poor prices. And I would think, again, that might be possibly more because of those other outside the farm employment related things perhaps. But Scott Irwin says no one is getting rich from all this aid because the market prices have been so low, but it has stopped the bleeding financially. I don't
1: know about no one.
0: Yeah. I think probably there's some people probably in like that, the big agribusiness who are still getting to sell all of that anhydrous ammonia and, um, Roundup and shit I bet that they're still making their, their Tidy profit yeah, it Sounds like
1: Rob LaRue and uh, Scott Irwin need to get in the same room And maybe discuss a little bit of this Because they seem to have very different views On what's going on here
0: <laughs> Yeah So, um, And where, where does this $61 billion come from um, Where does that money printer live The money for the farm programs Comes from the Commodity Credit Corporation Which was created back during the Dust Bowl In 1933 it has authority from Congress to borrow up to $30 billion from the U.S. Treasury and private lending agencies. With the latest round of aid, the CCC may deplete its current limits, requiring a continuing resolution by Congress to replenish its funding. And I think I'm just going to forecast that's going to be a bipartisan continuation.
1: Oh, of course.
0: So, yeah, definitely no problems It'd there.
1: Be, I mean, it would literally be political suicide to not support that.
0: <laughs> but I mean, uh, I, I don't think that there's going to be like another farm crisis in the next 10 years based on what we just heard. I'm sure that that won't happen or isn't already happening. I don't know if
1: farming is going to exist in 10 years at this rate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we kind of covered like the small family farmer a little bit there, right? I think we can kind of see if we sort through some of that bullshit and all these billions of dollars that there are actually some people who are super struggling right now, living on farms, who have lost off-farm income. And already, that off-farm income was only further subsidizing their heavily subsidized produce.
1: It's a little reminiscent of like teachers having to buy their own supplies to teach children. You know? It (laughs) is. Pulling, Pulling money out of their own pocket for something that is sort of a public good, but we definitely don't seem to treat it that way, necessarily.
0: Exactly. And so that's why, you know, even with 61 billion dollars with that figure, I still feel bad for like these these few small family farmers that are still out there because um when you see that, you know, the cap can't be more than $900,000 unless you're already an ultra large mega mega farm corporation, then you're basically saying this is primarily for the the biggest and not for the smallest, right?
1: Well, I mean, those guys are the best at what they do, so they've worked hard they should get more reward right
0: define best
1: (laughs) best make more money what are you talking about this is america buddy
0: (laughs) define make money though i mean who are they making money off of (laughs) i mean
1: (laughs) you know by hook or by crook they're they're obtaining money either way so i'll tell you what they're way better at getting large sums of money either quote unquote honestly or from the government than i'll ever be
0: well, uh fuck oh my god. Yeah, nine thousand dollars. But I have corn, Jared, I swear.
1: <laughs> that remains to be seen. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. Do these guys even?
0: Alright, well let's let's take a look at the live animal side of agriculture as opposed to the crop side. Oh, my
1: favorite part.
0: Yeah, the favorite part that no one likes to think about, right? Oh man. <laughs> we talked a little bit about small family farmers which are one of the groups getting screwed over by big ag. But also, yeah, it's the people who are working the line in slaughterhouses, primarily like uh, Latinx people, a lot of immigrants, migrant laborers, people who are on a tenuous string and basically are extremely vulnerable, right?
1: Yeah, those... They're
0: they're totally getting fucked up. Those people
1: up. are the exact opposite of the just people we were just talking about.
0: Uh, the large farmers, the the...
1: I mean they they're not even the small farmers.
0: They're yeah. You know, they don't have any land.
1: Half the time they don't even have a car.
0: Yeah. What we said earlier about, you know, people, you know, over generations just getting subdivided out of land is totally true for a lot of migrant workers who come from like um, you know, Latin America. Oh yeah. That because of the economic horror imposed upon their country by um primarily the USA and just, like, generations of stagnation, they can't, like, go get, bus- get jobs in the agribusiness sector in Guatemala. They have nowhere to go in their own country, and so they have to, like, come <coughs> looking for work in other places. And who who is super ready and willing to hire them? The big agribusiness here in America, right? No, they wouldn't do that. Well, obviously they do. Oh, yeah. Especially in, if you've ever been to a all- dairy farm. Or worked on a horse race track or chicken slaughter or even lived in a community that had a slaughterhouse, right? It draws people of Latinx backgrounds who are ready and willing to do the work. Honestly, right?
1: uh, anymore, a lot of them are uh, from like Somalia.
0: And, okay. Uh, yeah.
1: There's a where I live. There is a pretty massive uh, African population that has kind of cropped up in the past fifteen years, and it seems like almost all of them work at one of the many slaughterhouses around. Uh, Sioux City, right. Iowa, is where I'm from. So that is a huge industry here.
0: So obviously, there's you know cultural ramifications that kind of extend beyond that. But needless to say, and I mean again, Somalia, like, hey, did America ever fuck with that country? I, mm, I think know. that was
1: Britain mostly, but <laughs> <laughs> same difference.
0: Well, wasn't uh, Black Hawk down Somalia?
1: Oh man, I my understanding is that uh, I think pretty much Britain dumped a bunch of toxic waste off the coast of Somalia and destroyed their ancestral fishing lands, and then that's pretty much why they needed to turn into pirates, because their ability to make a living was completely destroyed, which is a pretty good, uh, you know, it's same thing as what went on in Guatemala and all that stuff.
0: Exactly. And, I mean, the point of this, what we're saying, is that these people aren't, like, coming here to, quote-unquote, take our jobs, right? That, rather, they're being invited here by uh, many of the same people who organized the systematic destruction of their countries. So, yeah, let's let's just take a look at this article here. Um, so, this is from a very interesting uh, farm writer named Alan Gubert. Strong last name. Strong last name for a farm writer, right? Definitely. Gubert. I've always kind of considered Gubert as like an almost communist. And I would compare him to like the Narodniks of uh, late 19th century Russia. Like these were the agrarian socialists who went into the Russian countryside to try and like educate peasants and engage them in politics. And they were like strongly opposed to czarism, but they were pre-Marxist. And so they didn't really have like a strong view on capitalism mainly um. Although that came later. A lot of them just wanted the peasants to, like, learn and control their own destiny.
1: Yeah. Um, They're like, this sucks. You guys are getting fucked over. Uh, let me help you guys maybe try to band together a little bit and improve your lot.
0: Right. But, of course, I think that what, like, Gubert doesn't understand and what the Narodniks didn't understand was that. A lot of these peasants have like deeper, like cultural attachments to these things that uh, are being criticized. And so that's a very hard thing to do. Like if you're telling them like, hey, maybe, you know, uh, social welfare is like a good thing. Or, hey, maybe the czar is a bad thing, right?
1: Say, so, did they have diesel pickups back then in Russia? <laughs>
0: no? Just diesel Clydesdale. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> Same difference.
0: All right. So um, gubert you know, he's he's coming at this from a, um, a critical standpoint, but I think that he kind of just like stops a few steps too short. But it's, it provides an interesting look at this problem that's happening in slaughterhouses right now um, with coronavirus and um, the working conditions within these places, which are, you know, that again, that's a whole other episode, like the working conditions in slaughterhouses and the animal welfare that is the absence of it. Um, in these conditions, right? sometimes it's
1: hard, to, hard to distinguish who's being treated worse, the workers or the animals.
0: Yeah. So. um Goober, kind of talking about a pro publica investigation here and also the death of someone who I think was probably his friend who was like a food safety lobbyist reading from the story. The coronavirus found a perfect place to root and grow this spring in the tight quarters of America's massive livestock and poultry slaughterhouses. Local public health officials responded to virus outbreaks by ordering workers tested and, in some instances, plants closed. Probably a good thing, right?
1: I mean, I think most of them were closed for about three days, if that.
0: Ah. So to counter these local shutdowns three days later, Major Packers and their lobbying arm, the North American Meat Institute, great name, drew the Trump administration a roadmap on how the government could keep slaughterhouse workers on the job despite the pandemic. Just a week before the White House issued its rare April 28th order to force workers back into plants, the North American Meat Institute drafted an executive order that bears striking similarities to the one the president signed. In fact, the executive order was basically just a working draft from the emails exchanged between the top USDA officials and the industry advocacy group. So that led to this quick seven-day turnaround amid the COVID-19 emergency that basically forced all of these places that had been shuttered because of coronavirus concerns to immediately reopen and resume production. There's another
1: quick turnaround, man. It's... Crazy how efficient this government can be, you know?
0: I know, right? Like, with again, and it was like one week. (laughs) It's like if you are a massive, you know, industrial sector that has, like, huge lobbying pull, then you can get things done extremely quickly.
1: Yeah, I think we just need more lobbyists.
0: Well, um, big meat. I like this phrase, by the way. Big Big meat? meat? It's really
1: awakening something inside of you, it sounds like.
0: Shortly after Big Meat made its pitch to the White House, the Labor Department, which had been hearing similar complaints, issued guidance clarifying that workers who quit to avoid contracting the disease would not receive jobless benefits. And on top of that, uh, the Big Meat president, Julie Anna Potts, said, Hearing a strong and consistent message from the president or vice president is vital. Being afraid of COVID nineteen is not a reason to quit your job, and you are not eligible for unemployment compensation if you do. <laughs> um, emphasis added by the presenter.
1: I know that's not funny, but all I can think is the sentence, big meat made its pitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a line drive up the middle for sure. Oh, man. Um what happened then was that the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, was empowered to order the worried, and in some instances, already COVID-infected employees, back to work. And to make sure that they went, the government removed any safety net if they quit out of fear or illness.
1: No relation to the family that owns the like largest meat production company on the face of the earth, Perdue Farms somehow i thought for certain when i saw that that like the agriculture department head was just like straight up the son of like the pretty <laughs> farms baron or something
0: i mean i wouldn't have been surprised though like you could have just said that i've been like yeah i was probably. more surprised that he wasn't
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so with little recourse most of the brow beaten and scared 65%, by the way, 65% of U.S. meatpacking employees identify as either black, brown, and or immigrant. With little recourse, they went back to work. And as a result, says ProPublica, more than 43,000 were sickened through contacts made within these uh, packing plants. And at least 195 people died. I'm surprised because that they this. didn't just like,
1: lock them all in <laughs> like the Tyson facility that they worked at for two weeks or something. Boy,
0: well, yeah, I mean, talk about community it, exactly spread. Exactly because there, huh? there's the, there's this dimension of racial control here, right? And what we're going to look at in the next one is that the transmission rates were very different between salaried employees and non-salaried employees who are on the floor doing the dirty work. Oh, definitely. And even in that,
1: so as part of my know, job, I go into these all the time, and uh, the the office workers are completely segregated from like what you call the line workers or like the people that are actually basically the white people are completely separated from all the black and brown people.
0: Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is in the next part, when we look at how there's these differences in spread, I'm guessing that 65% that is black, brown and immigrant and or immigrant is probably going to be mostly on the line. Oh
1: yeah. I mean, you will see like some white dudes in there, but I mean, most of them like, I don't know. This is going to be this is going to be one of those ignorant things I say or whatever, but your average white dude that looks that works like on the kill floor or whatever at these places is going to be heavily tattooed, probably missing some teeth, looks like he probably <laughs> like, you know, knows how to turn a light bulb into a smoking uh pipe, if you get my drift. And
0: well, I've known a few of those white guys and it's exactly right so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: And everyone else, I mean, yeah, they're from, like, Guatemala or Honduras or, uh, you know, some of them are from Africa. But, I mean, they're all, right. like, they all have, like, kids and wives and families and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. like whenever I talk to one of them, um, I was talking to my buddy Daniel, who works at one of these places, uh, earlier in the spring. And he wanted to be able to, for the first time, take his son, who's eight, to Honduras, like, where he's from, and his wife. And he was really excited to go, and it sounded like, I think his dryer broke or something like that, and that pretty much means that he had to put that trip on hold for another year. Like, outside of COVID, obviously, that might not have been doable in retrospect, but still, you know, like, a few hundred dollars was standing between him and being able to go see, letting his son go see his family, basically, back home.
0: Fuck, dude. And he's, like,
1: one of the he's one of the like shipping and kill floor supervisors. So he makes more money than the average person that works there. Holy shit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's just, I don't know. That's so sad. And um yeah, he's
1: one of the, one of the best people I know. Really awesome guy. He's our age. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. And and I just wanted to point out that like these 195 people who died. Yeah. Most of these people are supporting families. And these families now don't have a, a breadwinner. They don't have a caregiver. You know, this is this is a, a horrible human tragedy. Like, this is a crime against humanity. Oh, yeah. What happened. And and, um, and these are not, these but are yeah, not so, all
1: men. There are a lot of women that work in these places. Yeah. A whole lot of women that work in these places. Exactly.
0: So, um, Goober kind of does a weird thing here where he kind of does this equivalency where he leaves it off with 195 people who work on meatpacking plant lines dying. And then he says, enter Tony Corbo, this food safety lobbyist who spent most of his Capitol Hill career monitoring and improving federal food and water safety rules and regulations. As senior lobbyist at Food and Water Watch, Corbo sniffed out big meat. Back to work request of US. USDA. <laughs> There's some psychology admit-
1: going on in this, guy's, in this guy's wording of things about big meat. <laughs>
0: So as senior lobbyist at Food and Water Watch, Corbo sniffed out Big Meat's back-to-work request of USDA in mid-April and raised a series of red flags. Obviously, the most important thing you can do.
1: It's all about awareness, folks.
0: Then in July, Corbo again raised alarms on how Big Meat, excuse me, Big Meat, (laughs) was using the pandemic to get USDA to further weaken already lax poultry slaughter rules. So he raised a series of red flags and alarms.
1: I'm, sure, I'll, I'm sadly. sure all kinds of people listen to him, too. That's why we've all heard of this guy.
0: Yeah, well, sadly, Jared, he died on Monday, September 14th. Unfortunately, that was the same day that this ProPublica story was released, talking about how basically it just took a telephone call or a series of emails between the meat industry and the White House to force powerless workers back into jobs where thousands would be sickened and hundreds would die. And on top of this, to tie it back in with our previous article, that's still going on even as most U.S. meat producers, and by the way, these are meat producers because the packers, not individual farmers, own the overwhelming majority of America's slaughter animals. Oh, yeah. This is still going on even as those meat producers are increasingly supported by taxpayer subsidies just to stay in business.
1: Yeah, speaking of Purdue Foods, they just completed like a i want to say it was like a 29 million dollar expansion of one of their facilities that we deal with all of the time so that sounds like a real small small operation there right
0: yeah right so goober is kind of like making this weird false equivalency where he's like boy are we going to miss tony corbo and i'm like well it doesn't sound like tony i mean sorry the tony corbo died sorry the rbg died sorry everyone dies but it doesn't sound like Tony Corbo did a whole lot. Like, he raised alarms and red flags. But he's working for, like, this tiny little lobbyist group against, you know, the massive free speech <laughs> capital accumulation of, you know, Purdue and ConAgra and whoever. And
1: Corbo just needed a better social media presence, I think. We could have really change things.
0: <laughs> but I, I just think it's pretty absurd to think that somehow a few public interest lobbying groups can keep the lobbying interests of the huge industries in check, given the sheer difference in resources. Well, clearly they haven't. Yeah, like, I mean, clearly they haven't. Like, Gooberts writing about it, but who's reading Gubert?
1: Well, I'm sure not, but... <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but, you know, this guy's dead and not going to be doing this anymore, but is it... Was he really changing much of anything?
0: Well, I, guess, I think the bigger loss that Gubert should have focused on a little bit more here is the 195 people who were murdered by the Trump administration. I
1: mean, have they done any lobbying?
0: <laughs> no, they can't do lobbying. They don't have all the free speech. <laughs> so, I mean, but like you said, people aren't working these types of jobs just to support their hobbies, right? They have families. They don't have breadwinners now. And <laughs> they're not just getting don't have
1: time for hobbies.
0: They don't have time for hobbies and they're definitely not going to get a quarter million dollars from the government to see them through the pandemic. Right.
1: Uh, Unquestionably not.
0: But it's just gall and it's incredibly galling because all of this shit, these 195 deaths weren't even done to meet a real demand. It was just done to support this business that is run on taxpayer subsidies, as Gooper points out.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I don't. I know we're probably not going to have like a source for this, but uh, at one point in time, I read that we had enough meat in cold storages in this country to pretty much not have any type of meat shortage for like 18 months if there was zero production. <laughs> you know, we just have to export less, which is also in, a, in itself is a huge business is meat export i mean we haul we haul plenty of stuff into chicago that just gets on a ship and it goes straight to japan or china or you know all kinds of places
0: well um let's let's now narrow this meat packing plant um analysis into our favorite place south dakota where the design of the south dakota meat packing plant is what contributed to the high number of COVID-19 cases, according to the CDC. Oh, man. Every,
1: every time South Dakota's in national news, I just hold my breath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when the CDC – oh, and this is um, from The Counter. I think it was The Counter, um, online news publication by Pramod Acharya. And this, I think, really kind of highlights the confluence of the racial and class dimension of this problem, right? Which Gubert only kind of lightly touched upon. So when the Center for Disease Control and Prevention visited Smithfield Foods in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, earlier this year, they came away with an unsurprising conclusion. Departments in the plant where workers had to crowd together to do their jobs had more cases of COVID-19 than departments where workers could space out according to the cdc's august report and this is basically what we were talking about where are the people who are forced to be within six feet of each other it's harvest where pigs are stunned and slaughter um cut where the pork is initially cut up and conversion where the pork is refined into a finished product
1: oh wow they're they're calling it harvest now huh yeah harvest right yeah that used to just be called the kill floor (laughs)
0: I mean, it, I'm sure, I'd, fuck, dude. If I worked there and I, they told me to call that Harvest, I would be like, "No, I'm, I'm not." I'm, I'm Harvest
1: done. sounds more uh, like more sinister <laughs> in a certain sense, yeah. I guess.
0: I think so, but basically, all of the dirty work, all the wet work, is where all of this um, transmission is happening.
1: Yeah, where literally all of the production is being done.
0: Right. And so meanwhile, salaried employees, and I don't and I don't know if this is true, I haven't physically witnessed this, but when I see salaried employees at Smithfield, I read white people. It's true. C- I've <laughs> literally
1: been to this place multiple times. It is the worst place we go to. Except for this one other place in Chicago, but this place is just absolutely abhorrent. <laughs>
0: So the salaried employees at this place could adjust their workstations to maintain social distancing so not as many contracted the virus according to the CDC report. In the end, as we know, you know, this was shut down for like a day and then Trump said open it back up cuz big meat says so. And what happened, almost 1300 workers tested positive for COVID-19 and 4 died according to the US Department of Labor. Which fined Smithfield about $13,000 for failing to keep its workers safe.
1: (laughs) Less than the amount of product on one truck going in there.
0: Yeah. I I said here, it's not even a slap on the wrist. It's like asking for a small tip after you suck off the entire industry to prevent (laughs) thousands of jobless claims.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, like,
0: fuck, dude. um, It's
1: 100, $100 per person infected. And uh those four deaths are only employees, right? That doesn't count like their abuelas or whoever else might have gotten sick because of that. Oh
0: yeah, I'm sure that it doesn't. I'm sure that it doesn't. But obviously the Department of Labor is just looking out for laborers. Yeah, I mean
1: this place is is a huge packing and uh, huge packing facility. I mean they probably spend more than that on pens every year or something like that it's it's like a rounding error for a place that big
0: and and again most of these people who are being infected here this is why i say it's a confluence of race and class right it's that by coincidence they are mostly latinx and as you said like like uh east african and immigrant people and um it's because they are the people who are willing to do those horrible horrible shitty jobs oh yeah right Where you do and see horrible things all the time, and it numbs you to like the the basic arithmetic of suffering.
1: Yeah, and you're like elbow to elbow with the person next to you while you're doing this.
0: Right, and the people, the you know, like white people who you see doing this, as you said, are often doing it because of like desperation. I mean, let's just call it supporting methods.
1: They're methods, methods, yeah.
0: It's it's also desperation. I'm sure that like average, you know, no one wants to be be do these jobs, on, but they have to support families. Yeah, the
1: average person that's on the, the kill floor, like this, is one of their only options. Because I don't know if most of them don't speak English, but a great deal of them don't or barely speak English.
0: Yeah, you know when when people kind of talk about like um, what is it like racial um, like uh, or, or class reductionism? Oh yeah, right. I think this is a good example of why class reductionism is bullshit. It's like race is a thing, class is a thing, and they kind of like muddle together in some ways when you look at how capitalists exploit people. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, you know, like I was saying, the only way you're taking these jobs if you're white is if you have like fucked up royally, which is probably not your fault either necessarily, yeah. but Yeah. I mean, you know, the average person from Africa if they happen to be in and out of jail and have like some type of dependency issue, they're probably not even going to be able to get this job.
0: It speaks to stakeholder capitalism, right? Which is presented as the idea of, you know, the ownership of these different people within a system and that the system might be run ostensibly for their benefit, but it is not.
1: You know, at least they're not in poverty in Africa or in South America where we've completely destroyed the ability (laughs) of their of them to make a living there so they can come here and barely have an ability to make a living.
0: Let's take a look at this last article. And this isn't really about big ag, but I think that everything that this talks about is extremely applicable. And and you, you found this Jared, what, what kind of like jumped out about it to you? Like, what did you like about it?
1: (laughs) What did I like about it?
0: (laughs) yeah how did this inspire you to be a better capitalist
1: how did this inspire me um well you know it's just about how these these for-profit companies they just need to be they just need to have a little more morality something that capitalistic businesses are famous for you know we can we can fix the world's problems if only these multinational business owners just Be a little less greedy and uh, find it in their heart to just, you know, care about the common man a little bit.
0: You hit the nail on the head. And so let's let's uh, hear what this guy, Mark Benioff, chief executive of the technology giant Salesforce. Sounds
1: like a really smart guy.
0: So, he's an evangelist for stakeholder capitalism, which, as we kind of talked about, is this idea that companies must elevate the interests of workers, the environment, and local communities alongside their shareholders. Sounds... Meaning the people who are profiting from all of that stolen labor and land. Sounds
1: great. I couldn't think of any barriers to behaving in that manner.
0: (laughs) Well... His company was among the 181 members of the Business Roundtable, a club of CEOs that last year promised to broaden its traditional obsession with the bottom line to include societal
1: concerns. I just can't stop thinking about like, the egregious music choices and dancing in a club just filled with CEOs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in late August, as Salesforce celebrated more than billion in quarterly sales, Mr. Benioff proclaimed validation. This is a victory for stakeholder capitalism, he said in a television interview. The next day, in the midst of the pandemic, Salesforce informed 1,000 employees that their jobs were no longer needed.
1: Oh, man, but what about this victory for stakeholder capitalism? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but
0: my stakes... They're all over the ground. I guess a
1: rising tide raises all ships unless, you know, you don't happen to be one of those people lucky enough to be on the ship.
0: Unless you get pushed out of the boat.
1: (laughs) Pushed out of the boat by the captain. We we sold five billion dollars. Look at this great new plank we just bought. Right this way.
0: So, you might think stakeholder capitalism sounds great. But unfortunately, it seems that its signatories have done no better than other companies in protecting jobs, labor rights, and workplace safety during the pandemic, while failing to distinguish themselves in pursuit of racial and gender equality goals, according to the study. Are you surprised,
1: Jared? Oh, well, as somebody who is a big fan of the Kyoto Protocols, no. I mean, yes, I'm very surprised. (laughs) I can't believe, you know, I I thought just maybe by chance that it would have worked this time.
0: So, this evaluation was done by a consultancy group that counsels companies on environmental policy, and a group of researchers convened to convene to assess how corporations have responded to the pandemic and the movement against racial injustice. Um, its advisory board includes a professor of management at the University of Oxford
1: okay.
0: and senior executives from financial firms including Morgan Stanley and Liberty Mutual. <laughs> So, you Coincidentally, know, they were you got the, the best minds.
1: They were the exact people that told Mark to lay off a thousand people immediately. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So, yeah, I find it, I I already, like, what they find, I'm kind of like, they're probably, like, downplaying it a lot as it is.
1: <laughs> I would imagine. If you so, got... I mean, this was in, what was this in, the New York Times or, like, the Independent or something?
0: Yeah. We should call out the the author. This is by Peter S. Goodman writing in the flailing, the wailing New York Times, uh,
1: traditionally anti business New York Times. So,
0: <laughs> but the fact that this is coming from people who were from financial firms, Morgan Stanley and Liberty Mutual, and they're the ones saying, "Yeah, you guys suck at racial equality, <laughs> climate justice, and worker involvement." And workers compared rights. to what, though?
1: What are they like? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah you guys suck <laughs> we're so much better so
0: since the pandemic's inception the study concludes the business roundtable statement has failed to deliver fundamental shifts in corporate purpose in a moment of grave crisis when an enlightened purpose should be paramount won't someone think of the children and five billion dollars buys a lot of lip service The study enhances doubts that corporations can be depended upon to moderate their quest for profits to pursue solutions to challenges like climate change, racial injustice, and economic inequality. Skeptics, I wonder who would be skeptical of this, skeptics argue that a single stakeholder will always retain primacy, the shareholder.
1: Huh. No, that seems like a pretty radical thought. I'm going to need, I'm going to need hundreds of years of uh, evidence to believe that
0: skeptics more like dirty hippie communists <laughs> might say that. So, and this is what um the president of the business roundtable said in defense of themselves in light of this criticism from Morgan Stanley and Liberty Mutual. Well, clearly they
1: just need 5 more billion dollars and it'll work next time.
0: <laughs> well, let's hear what they have to say for themselves. This was not a demotion of the long-term shareholders. Because, in our view, the interests of all stakeholders align in the long-run success of the enterprise. (laughs) But, it is a rejection of short-term shareholder interests. Wait, (laughs) what?
1: (laughs) Did he literally just say, like, no, this is actually the opposite of what it is?
0: yeah basically he's like yeah. he's like
1: your aunt that fucking like flies off the handle at thanksgiving dinner and then she's like everyone's having a great time huh after she's just like <laughs> ruined everything <laughs> everything's great isn't it this is the best thanksgiving we've ever had anyone want more pie <laughs> So companies, I don't know. Did you know this, Jared?
0: Companies can trigger immediate gains in their stock prices by cutting costs through layoffs or slashing employee benefits. And you'd
1: think they'd do that all the time, then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't worry, though, because uh, this guy says that in the long term, that's not going to serve the enterprise well if you haven't properly taken care of all of your stakeholders. Now,
1: I feel like he's trying to confuse us by saying shareholders and stakeholders oh yeah
0: <laughs> he's using them interchangeably for this sure.
1: is a very cursed sentence right here
0: well this is like corporate newspeak right this is like pure like synergy enthusiasm market driven excellence you know oh
1: god is like, that why I'm starting to drool none of this shit means anything
0: what's, what's said, that is
1: that why I'm starting to drool all of a sudden <laughs> yeah for sure
0: <laughs> I maximize my revenue flows through synergistic undertakings
1: oh, yeah. <laughs> give it to me daddy
0: so he added, you cannot take care of any of them without taking care of them all. So basically, what he's saying here is that if even if you th- push 1,000 people out of your company and like lay them off, you're still taking care of them because you're taking care of your governing board. Because in the long run, the success of that enterprise will be more important than those 1,000 people's livelihoods.
1: Obviously, and you just straight-up fire them. I mean, they're no longer a stakeholder, so fuck them.
0: Well, they're still being taken care of because the company's doing well.
1: Obviously. Yet,
0: the recent history of American capitalism is the story of wages stagnating for ordinary workers, even as shareholders reap extraordinary gains. The divide has proved especially stark during the pandemic, Shareholders suffered initial plunges in the asset values, but then recovered. Tens of millions of wage earners remained jobless and massing at food banks. I wonder if those two things could be connected in any way.
1: I'm pretty sure, uh, no, everything's good. I think, uh, I'm just going to go with my gut here. I think, I think his perspective is the one we should all adopt.
0: He has money, which means God likes him, which means he is good.
1: I right, see so you've been uh, dipping into the old Protestant brew over here.
0: <laughs> I know my Protestant theology. <laughs> I, know, I know that rich people are inherently good people. Definitely. The report, though, notes that very few companies of the 181 that signed the business roundtable statement even submitted it to their governing boards for approval a fact cited in a law review article as evidence that the pledge is an exercise in public relations.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's pretty obvious, I suppose, but usually like they do a little more diligence than that, even in their bullshit. ER sense. <laughs>
0: well, ho- hold on. M- Bolton is the president of the business yeah oh, <laughs> He has more defense. He said that board passage was not required because member companies have already embraced the statement's principles it did not arise from nowhere he said the statement has to be viewed as both capturing an evolution and expressing an aspiration (laughs) you have to see it as synergizing your profit revenues for future quarters while minimizing your expected output overhead
1: see this is why I could never be a CEO I don't have like I don't have like the the just raw delusion that it would that it would take to be one of these people. This is this is brilliant. This is genius. Do you know how many people? No, this is genius. Do you know how many people are gonna like read not this article but read their little pledges on this issue and believe it,
0: <laughs> and then feel good about themselves yeah, totally. while they fuck over an employee. Well, for a
1: second there, I thought you were gonna say. Uh, that Bolton's company was one of them that didn't even submit it to their board. Like, they're <laughs> That would be really... The business roundtable, dude. <laughs> well, obviously, we all agree. We're the ones that came up with it. <laughs> oh, man, I... I just love life, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, um... This article goes on to talk a lot about, you know, like Amazon and Wells Fargo and even some companies that have actually like there's like three that have actually upheld the standards of this business roundtable. But why? But right. But why? <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> you clearly I don't mean, have to. It's, but I, I just think that, you know, that's actually the lens that we should view big agribusiness through. And so I think it's a good like kind of sum up for what we've been talking about. Because particularly when we think about the beloved small farmer and the oftentimes like loathed immigrant laborer, right? Neither of these people is actually a stakeholder in the system. The stakeholders are the USDA and all of their employees and shit and um, NRCS people and big agribusiness, Monsanto, Dow Chemical, ConAgra, and uh, the land-grant universities that um, essentially are just like the training programs for these, like, mega corporations. And Jared, we didn't even talk about monoculture. We didn't even talk about the actual ecological ramifications. We just talked about the economics of this shit. Oh, boy. Like, millions of acres of corn and soybeans.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, we just took an hour and 45 minutes to say, you know, Big company bad takes all the money, pushes out all the little guys, and all of the negative effects run downstream like in pretty much you know metaphorically and literally,
0: yeah, and I think we should turn back very briefly at the end to Alan Gubert though, because you can't lobby your way through food safety groups, you can't like lobby your way out of the situation again. there needs to be some kind of like fundamental realignment of. Not just the, the raw economics of food production and fucking ethanol. Holy shit. <sighs> but also the the labor market and on top of that, land. There needs to be like some kind of land reform. I'd call me call me a grockeye. Are we the grockeye, Jared? Are we the grockeye? God, I hope
1: not. I don't feel like getting assassinated anytime, soon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we want land reforms for the peasants. Totally. <laughs> the the patrician the patricians' estates are too large. <laughs>
1: yeah I mean you know all of all of these people that we've talked about today are all of the the stakeholders that are more stakeholders than others um they all have the exact same interests I mean they probably yeah. all have the same backers I mean hell, they're probably the same people at a certain on a certain level i mean yeah, yeah you know how are you gonna out lobby these people that literally own entire industries exactly? Exactly. You have to, you know,
0: pick up the the stick of Teddy Roosevelt and start trust busting. I mean, at the very minimum, I don't I'm not I don't claim to be like, you know, Mr. Ideas guy over here. I smoked weed. Um, <laughs> grandpa's grandpa's stash. But I'm just saying, like, it seems like from past past principles, by the way, Teddy Roosevelt took his trust buster stuff into action coming out of the 1890s farm crisis. And of course, a lot of the regulation Um, A lot of those uh, many beneficial programs from the USDA were coming out of the Dust Bowl crisis. But out of the the 1985 farm crisis, um, basically, we just kind of doubled down on toxic neoliberalism and destroying the environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, after every crisis, we have to take dramatic action just to not have everyone die and then about five years goes by we sort of mitigate things and we're just like all right well coast is clear let's just go back to how we were doing things except for more now this time with better technology
0: yeah yeah there you go i had one other thing i wanted to to touch on with ag before we got going on other stuff okay that i feel like for you and me jared as as gardeners right as people who uh would love to be self-sufficient, who would love to grow our own food and not have to rely on big agribusiness for anything. I feel like we actually have some economic stake in this because as people who might want to someday say own an acre or two of land, this is also fucking us over, right?
1: Uh, yeah, like, 100%. I mean
0: like anyone out there who like has some new idea about, you know, Growing a better duck, or you know, raising wool in a humane fashion, or or even just like
1: raising wolves.
0: (laughs) Raising wolves, (laughs) sure. Raising raising wolves as pets, or or yeah, you know, whatever. Like even just someone who like wants to go and be self sustainable and like bring vegetables to their farmers market. It's such an incredible barrier of entry because you have to get over a ninety percent. Farm subsidy for the income of grain producers, right? If you wanted to go and farm, set up an organic farm on 60 acres that were previously a grain field, the economic reality of that is that you have to get over 90% additional profit, in essence, well, and you just, from you just the federal government.
1: Yeah, you just can't do
0: it. Yeah, you just you know, can't. That's it basically <laughs> makes sure that everything will stay as only corn and soybeans. That's
1: literally been my dream. And, uh, yeah impossible. Uh you can't even get a loan for just land unless there's a house on it basically, unless you already have just acres and acres of farmland to put as collateral for it. Right. And
0: if all of that stupid corn weren't being burned up as ethanol, and if there weren't these, you know, huge subsidies for this ridiculously bloated industry, it would be a lot easier and there'd be a lot lower price hurdle to get over. To get, you know, some small parcel of land or uh, something that you could, you know, use for your own economic productivity. And which would probably be way better than having it be only corn for the environment. Because I presumably there would be like a tree and maybe some like weeds and grass that might like support like an insect or two. Yeah, I mean, it,
1: it would be hard to not make it be better, honestly. I mean, unless unless your farm specializes in like burning tires or something. <laughs> yeah. Um which is something we used so to do quite frequently when I was growing up. <laughs>
0: We grow only the most organic tire fires.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know who out there used to watch the Red Green Show, but it was sort of just like a trope in that show that there was just a tire fire always going down the road. And I mean, growing up in rural Iowa in the early 90s, I mean, that was pretty spot on. (laughs) Somebody was burning tires like once a month. Usually you'd catch a whiff, you know, somebody in the county was burning a big ass pile of tires. Short of that.
0: You know it's it's hard not to be better,
1: yeah <laughs> we rose nothing but strictly organic tires here at, <laughs> at our ranch
0: <laughs> but yeah the the ramifications through other sectors of the economy through even things like the farm bill, which you know totally affects um like food stamps uh school lunch programs the the fucking chemical industry um the land grant colleges. There are so many like layers to to this fucking onion. I feel like we could do so much of this this the future of this podcast just like peeling back the the big agriculture uh bullshit. But I think I think we should put it down for a little while.
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> we're just gonna become like the ag report except for no one that actually <laughs> would be interested in that is going to want to listen to our our point of view on that issue, I believe.
0: Welcome to commie Farm Radio with James and Jerry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Listenership <laughs> of three and they're all FBI agents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we are the compost bin of history podcast. Hopefully still appealing to people who are not quite at that big agribusiness scale just yet.
1: Or I mean if you want to give us some of that subsidy money, I don't really care what's your point of view is
0: <laughs> james has corn that died
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to get some of that land
0: we were talking about oh yeah there you go i don't know is this a more
1: light-hearted topic
0: we have another extremely old man who wants to save the environment to add to the ranks of joe biden
1: an old man an old white is gonna save us an old british white is gonna save us all <laughs> no no fear everyone
0: Dude, David Attenborough is 94 years old. Oh, he's like a
1: personal hero of mine, but I mean...
0: And he's on Instagram now.
1: Damn, I knew I kept an Instagram for some reason.
0: (laughs) So David Attenborough joined Instagram to save the environment. Or rather, he had two handlers join Instagram to save the environment through his persona, I guess?
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. I feel like... Attenborough's been in, like, media his whole life. He's got to be able to operate an Instagram, right?
0: I mean, it can't hurt anything, right? Like...
1: He's got to, for 90, for 94-year-olds, he's got to be in, like, the top one percentile of, like, being able to use computer technology, I would think.
0: Well, and Instagram is the digital Serengeti of the modern age. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) but I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I I just feel like I'm not on Instagram, you know, on a lot of podcasts are like follow us on social media, but I don't have any social media. So I guess I don't really have a take on this. You're on Instagram. I mean,
1: I'm on Instagram. All I do is take pictures of like insects and fungi and stuff like that. And follow like my friends in real life. Uh, But yeah, I don't have a Twitter I do have a Facebook to like go on every once in a while and just make sure monitor the brain worms, basically make sure that everyone's still insane. Um, Yeah. But uh, I don't know. You know, I follow like the national geographic thing. It's all, it's all like most nature documentaries though, where it's just kind of like, Hey, look at this cool thing. Isn't that cool? Here's like a random piece of trivia about this thing. It's just, it's PR, you know, I mean, that's at the end of the day. That's what David Attenborough is basically is like PR for not burning tires. But, but yeah, he, he, he's joining Instagram because the climate catastrophe apparently is just a communication issue. Now, uh, full disclosure, I sort of dabble in like environmental education. At like a sort of novice entry point and i think it's very important to be teaching people about the environment and about climate change and all that stuff but i sort of take umbrage with the point of view that if if the average person just knew a little more about science that the things would change for the better
0: right and that's that's the problem is like Average people are going to see this and just be, like, encouraged by it, right? Like, oh, now David Attenborough's on Instagram. Like, that's going to...
1: Yeah, like, it lets, us, it lets us feel good because something is happening. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it's another small puzzle yeah. piece in the 5,000-piece puzzle that is the spectacle. Where we just right. see all these things that raises everyone's awareness, but, I mean... I'm pretty sure David Attenborough has had a program since like the early 60s. So if people knowing about stuff like the natural world and maybe some of the issues facing it, if that was the main problem, I feel like we probably would have done something by now. I guess the other thing is, uh, you know, like all these companies and industries that are sort of at the crux of why we're facing all of these Problems, especially with climate change, don't they have like teams of the most highly educated people on the planet working for them?
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, it's like it's like how Exxon figured out climate change in the 1970s and basically forecasted it through today, right? Like,
1: with ex- like with extreme, extreme accuracy, accuracy. Yes. yeah, the best scientists in the world, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you would think that they would be off by a standard deviation or whatever. And no, they're (laughs) completely on. It's insane.
0: But again, this, this shows why science is basically nutless, right? Like it only lets you observe what has happened and predict what will happen, but it gives you no like actual, um, pure means of, of action. Um, man, definitely policy should be based in science though. Yes. I mean, I feel like, but you still have to, I feel like
1: David Hume predicted this entire thing some some scotsman back in like what the 7 the late 1700s what was that I don't know this is just a one of end. the many brain farts that I have once in a while I'm sorry folks I forget literally everything but uh wasn't like You the, remembered
0: correctly that he was Scottish. Yeah,
1: uh the, the most important part of what I'm trying to say is his nationality. <laughs> Basically uh wasn't one of his major ideas that uh certainly we can use science to help us get to where we're going, but we can't use it to derive like morality or you can't get like a, an an ought from an is or whatever, you know, like you can, you can know the facts quote unquote trademark, but uh, that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean that you will come to the same conclusion as someone else looking at those same facts.
0: And so just talking about, you know, Oh, it's science like, or Hey, you know, we need to use, science like yeah we do we need to have science-based policies but what we don't have are science-based policies well and what we aren't hearing are any science-based policies and i mean
1: also yeah like what science because right now we're talking about overproduction and stuff sure you know there's a science behind all of that and
0: uh that's the the research at the land grant schools. Yeah. They they've driven that science has driven that. Yeah, that's
1: that's literally following science right there. But I mean, that's for like the majority of the stakeholders in this in this whole equation. I mean, that's a very bad thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've been going for two hours. We should call it, Jerry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Don't believe that. When the people at the top make a bunch of money, it's good for anyone else. And uh, plant some flowers.
0: Sharpen those pitchforks, turn that compost. Yeah, there you
1: go. Plant native flowers.